In 2005, a Hurricane Katrina uh, ravaged the, the Gulf Coast. I don't know if maybe you had a connection down there, maybe you lived there, had friends who did, uh, but it was devastating. And, and as we think back, gosh, I can't believe that was 16 years ago. A lot of us kind of maybe uh, thinking that was not so long ago. The next summer, the youth group I was a part of leading in St. Louis at a Methodist church there, we were like many folks streaming in to help give relief um, in the aftermath of Katrina. And the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans was a place that got hit particularly hard. It was a, a whole neighborhood that was wiped out. And I think we have a picture uh, of, uh-huh, working on it. Yep. Oh, bam, there it is. This is a picture I took in 2006. Now, it's a little grainy because cameras weren't as good in 2006, okay? So some of y'all are like, what, what is, <laughs> you know, we didn't have them all attached to our phones back then. And I mean, this has just stuck with me for all these years. Only thing left, concrete steps. It just makes me think of some questions. You're like, whose porch was this? How many evenings were spent out in the Louisiana heat waving to neighbors on the front porch? The only thing the floodwaters left standing were the concrete steps. And I think this is a stark picture that begs another question. You know, when everything else is swept away, what remains behind? In this three-week series, Rebuilding, we're going to be looking at reconstructing our church, our faith, our lives after devastation. We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah for the next three weeks. It's in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And it centers on a man who helps reestablish his ancestral home. The walls of their capital city, Jerusalem, had been uh, burned, had been destroyed in battle, and that left the city vulnerable to attack. It was clear to Nehemiah that he should rebuild the walls of the city, their security. That was the first thing that needed to happen to restore Jerusalem to its former glory. Now, in the eyes of some, you know, especially uh, the, during the pandemic, but even before that, you know, some would say, well, the church has taken a hit. The church is vulnerable. The church is in danger of crumbling. God is calling us to continue to build our church, not just First United Methodist Church, but Christians everywhere, to rebuild and to work to reach those that are far from God. Nehemiah was a Jew serving in the Persian royal house. This was a position of prestige. And he was doing this during Babylonian exile. So uh, the Jewish people were carried off against their will into enemy territory to, 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 to be slaves uh, and to be assimilated into this other culture, this other religion. The events of Nehemiah take place around 444 BC and the scope of the book is about 14 years. Nehemiah shows us what can happen when someone makes themselves available and takes advantage of an opportunity that God gives them. This book offers an excellent example for us about vision, about teamwork, about faith, about perseverance, as Nehemiah helps to reestablish the Jews, both socially and religiously, in their capital, Jerusalem. And another interesting aspect of the book is it's written in first person, and, and not a lot of, especially the Old Testament, takes that perspective. So Nehemiah doesn't see the destruction of Jerusalem firsthand. He hears about it. 
His people had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians and they were just beginning to return. They were starting to, to come back to their ancestral home. Just imagine entire peoples relocated from their homeland and now what they're returning to is rubble. We're gonna start in Nehemiah chapter one, verses three and four. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah was understandably distraught over the destruction of his hometown, as you could probably imagine. Now the first action he took, his first instinct is admirable because it's to pray. I don't know about you, but when crisis hits, even as a pastor, I'm, I'm not, that's not always the first thing. I wanna do something. All right, well, okay, how can we solve this? His first instinct was to turn to God. Too often we skip this step. So after praying and fasting, what does he do next? Well, he doesn't just bemoan the scenario. He, he, he wants to get to work. He wants to do something. So some time passes, and then we'll pick up in chapter two, starting in verse one. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, that's April and May, that's not like a pathfinder, right? <laughs> During the 20 year of King Ataraxi's reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me, you must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? And with a prayer to the God of heaven, there it is again, I replied, if it pleases the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, well, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it pleased the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. So Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And this would have been a high rank in the official courts. His duty was to serve drinks at the royal table. And this was a very trusted person because with, with constant fear of plots and, and conspiracies against the king, part of a cupbearer's job description, imagine seeing this on Indeed, was, was to actually drink wine being served to the king to make sure it wasn't poisonous. So you can imagine these two are pretty close knit. This is the person who makes sure I'm not being poisoned. So in order to have this position, Nehemiah would have been regarded as trustworthy and, and his, confidential with, his confidential relationship with the king gave him a lot of influence as you can see from, and that was a long passage we read. And, and what I love about Nehemiah is he uses his position, he uses his influence to do more than just mourn his city's fate. Uh, he decides to do something about it. And I, we have to imagine that this would have been a risky thing for him to do, to make all these requests, to tell the king why he was upset. You can see his kind of wheels turning. 
And then ask the king for help. Not only to be gone, but to finance it. Like, I don't know how time requests off work in your job, but right? But imagine saying to your boss, hey, I'm gonna go to Cancun for a week and also would love for you to pay for it. Your thoughts. <laughs> I mean, that's what's happening here. I need to be gone. I need uh, essentially a passport, right, to get through the different territories safely. And then I need trees. I need to take from your forest to help my people. This would have been a big ask. So the king grants his requests. And Nehemiah proceeds to Jerusalem. And once he arrives, he informs the people what he plans to do. This is from chapter two, verses 16 through 18. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. Again, this first person narrative, very interesting. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. I remember uh, some of the mission team shirts uh, from the folks in New Orleans had a verse from Nehemiah 2 on it uh, from this chapter, come, let us rebuild. I just thought of that. But I love this, this verse 18, let's rebuild the wall so they began the good work. Another translation says, so they committed themselves to the common good. Is it just me or is, or is some commitment to the common good maybe a little lacking in our current situation in our society? So if nothing else, let us walk out of here committed to the common good. In Jesus' name. Now, Nehemiah chose to leave a cushy position as a cupbearer in the Persian court to rally his countrymen and rebuild his homeland. The work they were committing to is foundational. In other words, if they didn't get this right, if you don't get the walls of the city right, ain't nothing gonna be right because they would have still been vulnerable to attack. Nehemiah would lead his fledgling community in this foundational work. I think this image is so powerful. They were working on foundational things they had to get right. Man, for the past year and a half, I don't know about you, but it, it feels like a lot of normal ways of life have been carried off into exile. And we thought maybe we were coming out of the woods, turns out the woods might be bigger than we thought. I mean, even simple things like watching people's faces light up just by being able to serve them coffee. Where, where are the coffee people in the room, by the way? Where are you? Show yourselves, yes. You don't have to, it's good. I wish I liked coffee. I have to put enough stuff in it to make me like it that I might as well drink a Coke, which is what I really want to do anyway. <laughs> right? But I mean, simple things, like a cup of coffee at church, that's like the most basic thing ever, but today it's a big deal. That's just, that's odd, isn't it? It's odd. Got some participation this morning. I like that. <laughs> right? There were months where we didn't meet in person at all. I'm still not over Christmas Eve. No. No. Uh, there, there were months where you had to sign up or we had limited capacity. It has been wild. Basic foundational things. We've had to 
overcome these. They've been obstacles. And listen, I'm not comparing being carried off into exile in Babylon with not getting your coffee at church. <laughs> that would be insensitive. What I am saying is that our ways of life have been severely disrupted and coffee is merely a symbol of that. Right, almost every week at church, every week, somebody comes that hadn't come in a year and a half. It's like a reunion every Sunday. And almost every week at church, I see someone at Price Chopper, and this is how the conversation goes. Hey, pastor, it's been a while. I've been watching online, though. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not, I don't have like a, like a book, like a log. Okay, I need to get a t-shirt that says, I've been watching online, though. Like, it's, it's fine. It's good. You don't have to say that. I am glad for the ways that we've still been able to be together virtually as a community, uh, but this whole pandemic has caused me to think, and I don't even know how, what your all's um, tolerance is for, I don't want to preach about the pandemic every week, but it's just, it, it seems silly not to acknowledge reality because this whole year and a half has caused me to think just like the concrete steps in that picture, what are the most essential things that make the church the church? When you sweep everything else away, what's left that truly makes it what it is? What are the things that if we don't get right, ain't nothing gonna be right? So in the coming, sometimes it feels like minutes, hours. I mean, I sent out a church email yesterday at noon and then the school district comes out with stuff at like 1.30. I mean, it just, changes are coming quick and there may be more in terms of mandates or, or whatever the appropriate Christ-centered response is for our church. I can't sit here and predict those. None of us can. What I do have confidence in is that if we don't rebuild along the lines of these three things, then we are in danger of abandoning our mission to make new disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. These are the things we have to get right. These are the things that I, as, a, as your pastor, am committed to, and we as a staff want to give people through our church. The first is biblical faith. Biblical faith. This is central to our mission of disciple making. Now, I, you know, all of these things are good, but they're not the main thing. We're not here to just make nice people or produce kind children or, or be a social club or a concert venue or a humanitarian organization. You'll see that all these things come subsequently, but discipleship is what's on the marquee at any church. Our primary mission should be to help give people a biblical faith John 20, 31 says this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The scriptures were written to point people to Jesus, to discover true life. And that's what our church is to point people to. That's why we gather around the scriptures and worship uh, in our classes, as a part of small groups, our kids down the hall, that's what they're gathering around gathering around this word so that you may believe and that by a biblical faith in Jesus, you may have life in his name. I'm so glad that's a journey we don't have to go on alone. This isn't a solitary exercise, friends, because the second thing we have to give people is real community. Real community. A place to belong, a place to ask big questions of life, a place to find comfort in grief 
and a place to find a party in times of joy. One of my favorite verses is Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Carney's a special place. Now, I'll never forget, we had only lived here like two weeks and in our neighborhood, Shadowbrook, um, the snow cone truck was uh, in our neighborhood pool. So of course, with two kids, they see that and you can't not stop. And I remember saying to Michelle, I've, I felt like the most suburban kind of person ever. Cause I was like, Ooh, lacking cash. Do you have a square, you know, for a credit card? And, and, and she goes, I'll never forget this. That's okay, sweetie. You can just pay me next time. And I was like, where am I? <laughs> this is amazing. Right. And we've paid her many times since then. Uh, Michelle's become a good friend, but man, it's like, what, where is this is a special place. But Carney isn't just a special place. I believe this is a special church. Now I've experienced it firsthand. I still got a big old stack of cards um, when my dad passed. I've experienced it through your grace during this pandemic. I got a lot of pastor friends and almost all of them would love to trade places with me because of you all. I'm, I know it sounds like I'm just saying that. It's, it's true, man. But even more important than me experiencing this being a special community is the stories I hear about folks who've had people to walk with them prayerfully through a hard time, people who had a comforting meal provided to them when they buried a loved one, people who found a place to belong in the choir, in the band, in the small group, or a Sunday school class. And there's a lot of stories that we can't tell because we need to honor the dignity of, of the people involved but friends, I'm telling you that folks that have household repairs or, or major things they need or, or uh, even other legal situations that could unlock amazing things for their family, those needs have been met through the generosity of our church. People who are new to our town or new to faith have found a place to belong. So we must be a church that not only gives people the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also the experience of Christ's love through real community. We have to. We have to be a place where people can rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But this community and its benefits, friends, they're not just for us. And that's why we also must give people opportunities for selfless service. Selfless service, the third kind of non-negotiable, this foundational thing we have to get right. This church has a long tradition of, of being community-facing, of, of being a place that really wants to make a difference and help. We have to continue that and let folks in Kearney know that we are for them in how we serve them. Jesus said this in Matthew 20, his disciples were kind of arguing about who was kind of gonna be second fiddle, who was the most important, who was the captain of the team, so to speak. This is how Jesus responded. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We have so many serving opportunities. I don't even have time to list them. Um, but, but just a, a sampling of those, right? From, from the food bank here in town that our church helped found to uh, our partner school in the city, Whittier Elementary, to our longstanding partnership in Haiti 
This church is, is helping make a difference locally and around the world. We must continually look outward for who isn't here yet and how we can serve them. How can they experience the love of Christ as we follow the pattern that he set for us? I remember early on, I would have people ask me uh, when we moved here in 2019, well, Adam, what's your vision for the church? And I remember saying, ask me in a year. Give or take a pandemic, we're now in two years. <laughs> and even today, people will say, well, Adam, well, you know, especially as, you know, kind of week by week, stuff tends to change. And they'll say, what do you think about this or that kind of related to the pandemic? Now I'll say, ask me next week, right? Um, but I have a conviction that no matter what happens, we have to get these three things right. These are the things we have to give people as a church. Biblical faith, real community, and selfless service. You know, we're, we're in a time where we're, where we're gearing up for the fall. Uh, you're, you're hearing lots about that. Or, or we're rebuilding our student ministries. Uh, we're able to, to, we were able to have VBS this year. I mean, just basic things we used to do, we have to rebuild. So you're going to hear all about those things in the coming weeks. I just wanted you to know, I am so glad for the love of Christ that sustains us through this wild time. I want you to know how just overwhelmingly joyful my family and I are to be a part of this community. And I want you to know how glad I am that we can do this good work together. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this chance to be together, to hear from your word, a word that points us to Jesus. God, I don't know what we all brought in with us, what's on our list of rejoicing and what's on our list of mourning, but I know that you do. And so I ask that you continue to give us the grace to navigate all the different challenges and changes that are around us seemingly all the time and that we, we wouldn't let anxiety have the loudest voice but that your peace would cover all of that. God, I, I want to especially lift up our brothers and sisters in Haiti. We read reports about an earthquake with a tropical storm on, on its heels. God, natural disasters bring up a lot of hard questions we have for you. And so even as some of those go unanswered, uh, as we know we live in a broken world, we ask that you would come and provide peace and relief to the folks that have been affected. We pray for the students and the teachers and faculty uh, that we know and love and help support and that you would lift them up during this dark time. God, thank you for this community. Help us to do what you are calling us to, to continue our mission, to rebuild some ministries with a foundation that honors you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.
we have an opportunity as a part of worship to be generous and to give a part, a part of our financial gifts that God has given us back to God. Uh, in the service uh, after this one at 1045, we're gonna be recognizing and honoring um, some of our folks connected uh, to Cub Scouts. And, and scouting in general is, is an amazing ministry here at our church. I've never been in a place before uh, where the scouting leadership, it was uh, the same folks as our church leadership. It's just a wonderful partnership. Uh, what we're celebrating today is, is some classes that some, some young people went through to learn more about their relationship with God. And that was through scouting and that takes place here. In addition to all that, we also get cool stuff. <laughs> so on your way out today, if you haven't seen it, I'd love for you to look at the outdoor chapel that uh, a young man named Cody Alter built as his Eagle Scout project. Uh, and that's kind of just kind of a testament to uh, his desire to not just receive at our church, but to contribute. Uh, and that he made a space outdoors, super handy, uh, for, for people to enjoy the property here and to gather and to celebrate together. And so that's just one of the ministries that's able to happen every week because people choose to be generous. We have multiple ways to give at church. You can place your offering in the baskets on your way out. Um, you can give online by going to carney.church slash giving, or you can get that electronic process started by texting the word give to 816-354-1760. Let's pray over this offering. God, thank you for the many ways you bless us with the ability uh, to, to make a living. And we ask that uh, you receive these portions of our financial gifts and that you would multiply them and use them together to bless others in order that, in order that more and more people would come to know the saving love of your son, Jesus Christ. God, use these gifts for ministry in our midst. Amen.